Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 27th of January with me, Ian Welsh. As part of a new content series examining the state of the apparel sector ahead of Innovation Forum's Future of Apparel events in the spring, earlier this week, Innovation Forum's Hannah Homari spoke with Tiffany Rogers, Director of Fair Compensation and Member Engagement at the Fair Labour Association. They talked about how the sector can collaborate on delivering living wages and the obstacles that remain in the way of achieving this at scale. And a few days ago, I caught up with Innovation Forum's Emily Heslop to find out how the Future of Food event at the end of May in Minneapolis is coming together. First, though, it's time for some sustainable business news. CDP has released its latest results report for its non-disclosure campaign which is an initiative for investors and financial institutions to engage with companies that have not responded to CDP's climate change, forests or water security questionnaires. The campaign has demonstrated that companies are more than twice as likely to make disclosures if they are encouraged to do so by investors or shareholder groups. CDP says that 2022 saw more investors and environmentally impactful companies participating than ever before. And once companies have started to disclose, the vast majority continue to respond and progress. CDP picks out high-emitting sectors, transportation and power generation as being particularly receptive to shareholder engagement, being four and a half times more likely to disclose data once engaged. CDP says that this is symptomatic of the development of more realistic net-zero transition plans. However, while there are plenty of positive signs in terms of the rate of response to the campaign, still only 388 of the 1,466 companies targeted responded. The non-disclosure campaign clearly still has some work to do. Long-awaited plans to extend a drinks containers deposit return scheme UK-wide have been announced, catching England, Wales and Northern Ireland up with Scotland, where such a scheme will go live in August. The version in the rest of the UK is not expected to be live until 2025. A deposit return scheme, or DRS, involves consumers paying a small deposit when purchasing drinks that is then refunded when the used container is returned through a so-called verified channel, which can be a retailer outlet or reverse vending machines. Such schemes are very common throughout Europe. The scheme in the UK outside of Scotland will be run by a new deposit management organisation. Controversially, the current plans are that the DRS in England and Northern Ireland would not include glass containers. The scheme will focus on the 14 billion plastic drinks bottles and 9 billion aluminium cans used in the UK every year. Some in the glass sector have welcomed this move, preferring extending curbside domestic recycling where it is easier to keep streams of different materials separate. Others point out that a DRS scheme can allow for real scaling of washing and reuse of glass bottles rather than recycling, a significantly more circular approach. The EU's new due diligence regulations designed to remove products with deforestation risks from being imported into the bloc have not been well received by the governments of key Southeast Asian palm oil producer countries Indonesia and Malaysia. The nations produce around 85% of the world's palm oil between them, 30% of which is grown by around 3 million smallholder farmers. The governments have said that the EU rules risk marginalising smallholder farmers in particular as they may struggle to meet new standards and requirements. However, the Indonesian Palm Oil Farmers Union says that these concerns are excessive and in fact welcomes the regulations as they call for financial and technical support to help smallholder growers. Some commentators have highlighted the opportunity the EU regulations represent to secure the long-term sustainability of farmer incomes as the industry adjusts to fully comply. This does seem to be the key point. As we've reported, there is an argument that says that if a palm oil company is looking to de-risk its supply chain, it may look to cut out smallholder suppliers entirely. This is perhaps the most significant potential unintended consequence of the new EU rules. 
Finally, new research from KPMG UK shows that a significant number of workers make employment decisions based on their potential employer's ESG decision-making and corporate commitments more generally. One in five respondents said that they have turned down job offers based on the inadequacy of a company's public values, and over 80% want their companies to focus on values and purpose. Bravo. The Innovation Forum team is working hard on developing our 2023 spring conference season. We'll be discussing responsible sourcing and ethical trade, sustainable apparel and textiles, the future of food, and business and climate action on Scope 3 emissions. Do go to the Innovation Forum website for all the latest information and how to register at best rates. The US leg of Innovation Forum's Future of Food doubleheader conference series will be held in Minneapolis on the 30th of May and the 1st of June. To find out how the event is coming together, I caught up this week with my colleague Emily Heslop. Welcome back to the podcast, Emily. Thanks for having me, Ian. We're going to talk about the Future of Food USA coming up on the 31st of May and the 1st of June in Minneapolis. Emily, what is this year's format for the event and who is the event for? The event this year is going to be fully in person back at the Graduate Minneapolis and we'll be running a variety of different sessions to ensure we've got kind of those high levels of engagement and can facilitate that productive dialogue across the two days. We'll be having main stage plenary sessions, largely in the format of panel discussions, and we'll also be running four tracks of smaller, more technical breakout sessions. In terms of who the event is for, it's anyone who's operating across the food and drink value chain. We're going to have a huge range of different stakeholders there, from growers and farmers to suppliers and all the way up to retailers. Essentially, the event is perfect for anyone who's sick of Zoom calls looking to make some in-person connections whilst learning about what sustainability really means for the food and agriculture space. Certainly worth pointing out there's going to be a large variety of formats, lots of different sessions covering all the issues around the future of food. As the conference has been developing and coming together, what are the issues that have emerged? So we've got four key themes we're focusing on this year, looking at regenerative and climate smart agriculture, supply chain resilience, nature and land use and farmers of the future. Over the last year in the US, we've seen a lot of investment in the space, kind of that $2.8 billion worth of USDA grants for climate smart commodity projects to the Inflation Reduction Act. So we'll be looking at the key areas where that capital is actually going. And also, given the current volatile macro situation, we're going to be exploring the risks and opportunities of innovation within the food and beverage space. There's so many more issues we'll be tackling over the two days. And so more information can be found on that conference website if people are interested. There's certainly a lot happening. What new sessions have been added to the agenda recently, Emily? So we're currently developing a new session that's looking at the importance of understanding the life cycle analysis of feed and animal farming to meet those net zero and other environmental commitments. And this particular session is in partnership with DSM and we're going to be having David Dehoff speaking here. And there'll be a number of new sessions that emerge over the next few months as and when we confirm new speakers and the situation kind of in the space is evolving. Talking of speakers then, what new panellists have come on board in the last few while? Yeah, so over the last few weeks since Christmas, we've had Kim Sundy from Kellogg's join, Suzanne Mathis-Alig from Mondelez, Denise Osterhus from Kroger, Leslie McLaughlin from Conservation International, to name a few. We've got a number of other great brands and other great speakers that also can be found on that speaker section on the conference website. Okay, thanks, Emily. So how can our listeners get involved? If anyone's interested in sponsoring the event, in particular those service providers 
for solutions focused organizations we've got a number of opportunities so they can contact my colleague Anita Thompson whose email is on the conference website and she'll be happy to share more information there as for attending the conference listeners can register on the website and we've currently got a discount so listeners can save $450 on their conference pass if they register before the end of the day on Friday the 3rd of February And also, if anyone is interested in group bookings, I mentioned earlier, we've got those four tracks. We really recommend to join as a team so you don't miss anything across the two days. They can email me directly at emily.heslop at innovationforum.co.uk and we can provide kind of some additional group booking discounts there. So yes, 3rd of February, register by the 3rd of February uh, to save $450 on two-day conference passes. Looking forward to Emily. It'll come all too soon. Thanks for having me, Ian. As part of a new series on the state of the apparel sector, Innovation Forum's Hannah Homari spoke with Tiffany Rogers, Director of Fair Compensation and Member Engagement at the Fair Labour Association. They focused their discussions on how the sector can deliver on living wages commitments. Tiffany, perhaps you can start off with a brief introduction to the Fair Labour Association and your work in the area of living income. I'll start with myself. I'm Tiffany Rogers, and I've been at the Fair Labor Association for a little bit over 10 years, working with over two dozen companies on improving their social compliance programs through our accreditation work. And I've been able to apply a lot of my experience from working in fashion design and working with Dr. Marsha Dixon from the Better Buying Institute in improving company social compliance work and their purchasing practices. And then a few years ago, I transitioned over to the Fair Labor Association's Fair Compensation Program, which I'll get into a lot more detail a little bit later. Generally, for the Fair Labor Association, we're a multi-stakeholder nonprofit made up of companies, universities, and civil society organizations. Our companies largely come from the fashion apparel industry and the agriculture food commodity industries. Our main focus is to work with companies to improve their factory and farm conditions through improving their social compliance programs at the headquarters and really working with them to establish strong codes of conduct that uphold human and labor rights and then upholding our principles of fair labor and responsible sourcing and production at their headquarters, really ensuring that companies have the know-how resources and coordination across their sustainability programs and their business practices to improve workers' rights in their supply chains. To do that work, we have a lot of different activities that we do with our member companies, such as farm and field assessments, factory assessments. We also do shadow audits and training observations to ensure that companies can improve their monitoring programs at the factory and farm level and how they train workers, managers, and supervisors to uphold those rights. And when it comes to living wage, we have a toolkit of resources to have companies, especially in the fashion industry, improve living wages. So we have a wage tool that companies use to collect wage data at their factories, along with an online dashboard that allows them to analyze their living wage gap in their supply chains. And we work with our companies to have fair compensation blueprints to actualize those commitments using the data and improve their purchasing practices to close the living wage gap. And then recently, we worked with our companies to make public commitments to fair compensation and living wage to show stakeholders and shareholders that this is a commitment that they're investing in and making progress to improve on in their business practices. How are brands performing against the fair compensation commitments? 
What does the timeline look like here and what kind of progress have you seen made to date? In 2020, we launched our five-year strategy on fair compensation. It started with wage data collection, so requiring all of our participating companies and suppliers at the Fair Labor Association to start with collecting wage data in their factories, using our wage tool and our dashboard to help analyze the living wage gap. And then all of our accredited companies were required to have fair compensation blueprints. So using that data to analyze the gap and doing some root cause analysis to understand where they could make progress and identify opportunities to make that progress within their supply chain. We launched those commitments right before the COVID-19 pandemic. And so it was challenging for our companies to uphold those commitments during a time of turmoil and supply chain challenges for everyone. But we were happy to see that our companies continued with that commitment, resourcing that internally, even if there were challenges in, you know, how to manage through the pandemic, especially with a lot of the occupational health and safety concerns that workers had during the time and some of the lockdowns and shutdowns that happened. But they continued to collect that data, analyze their living wage gap. All of our companies had a blueprint or started a blueprint to work with their colleagues in sourcing and planning to address the living wage gap in their supply chains. In 2021, our companies who are accredited were required to have a public commitment on their websites. And we were also happy to report that all of our accredited companies were able to make that public commitment, really working with them to ensure that they felt comfortable in upholding this right, which is ambitious and receiving a lot of attention from civil society and other shareholders and to show how they were actualizing that commitment. So it wasn't just a commitment in words, but it also was being shown through actions and how they were mobilizing their sustainability programs to ensure that the work was being done to understand what wages were in their supply chains and how to make progress on that. And so from there in our fair compensation strategy, we are now working on solutions and so how to actually make progress and increase wages for workers. And that is where we see a lot of enthusiasm from our companies as well. They're a little cautious because this is very challenging work and does require the full commitment of the company's leadership to actually make that progress. But we've started to showcase what progress can look like through our case studies that we've published last year and a living wage pilot that we started in 2022 in Vietnam. So you mentioned some of these case studies. Could you share one of them as a practical example of success? In 2021, we published a case study that featured three factories, one from New Era, which is a cap company in the U.S., another from Puma, a great footwear company, and another one from Maxport Limited, which is a supplier in Vietnam that produces for companies like Nike and Hugo Boss. The focus of the case study was to look at excessive overtime violations that we had found in our factory assessments at these factories previously, and to see how companies were remediating excessive overtime violations and making living wage progress through that remediation. When we talk about living wage, we uphold it as a right in which workers can earn compensation that meets their basic needs and provide discretionary income without overtime. So 
you know, being earned during the regular work week. And in the fashion industry, we know that one of the systemic challenges is excessive overtime, that workers are working really long hours a week, sometimes 80 to 100 hours a week in total to produce the orders that fashion brands are submitting. And that the biggest barrier to living wage progress in the fashion industry is actually that excessive overtime because it's paid at a premium rate. So in some ways, it can disincentivize workers to be productive during the regular work week because the overtime premium can be two or three times more than what they earn during the regular time. In all of these three factories, we saw excessive overtime issues. And in all three, there were adjustments made in the factories to decrease excessive overtime through improving planning between the brand and the supplier, along with making improvements to the actual compensation systems at the factories. In two of the three factories, we saw a shift away from piece rate wages in which workers are only earning based on how fast they can complete their task and shifting towards more stable wages that allow for a base pay that meets the minimum wage and incentive pay that still incentivizes productivity and efficiency and attendance. And within those three factories, we saw that the living wage gap could actually be closed within two to three years of addressing excessive overtime issues, improving planning, and then also working with workers to engage with them, explain why shifts were happening to production planning and why changes were happening to the compensation system so that they understood that they're actually making more money and working less overtime, which is better and healthier, not only for the workers, but also for the businesses for uh, within suppliers and brands. Now let's look on the flip side a little bit. What are some of the major barriers that still exist when it comes to scaling these living wage initiatives? The first barrier, and you know, I want to give a shout out to Innovation Forum. I think in 2020, you interviewed Wendy Savage and Alex Katz from Patagonia. And in that podcast, they really talk at length the investment that companies need to make to collect wage data and really understand how much work goes behind understanding wages within the supply chain. And so the first barrier that some companies will see is that it does take expertise within the company on living wage to actually mobilize this work. And at the FLA, we are committed to training our companies and the staff at the companies to understand living wage, all of the kind of technical terms behind it, all the math behind it on how you calculate workers' wages and how do you analyze that data. That is a significant amount of resources, not only on our end as a nonprofit, but also on a company's end to really invest and make that change within the business practices. And Alex and Wendy talk a lot about how to do that and in more practical terms in that podcast. So really suggest people go ahead and listen to that as well. But the other barrier is what we're seeing is at the FLA, we have over 50 companies working on this work in the fashion industry. And yet that's not going to be enough to really make systemic change in the global fashion industry. And so we do need to see more fashion brands and retailers uh, committed to upholding living wage as a right in their supply chains and how they do business and making this work so that it is scalable across the industry and not just by individual companies. As you mentioned, collaboration is certainly key here to delivering change on a systemic scale. So on that note, what are the opportunities for effective multi-stakeholder partnerships to scale up these programs? What would genuine collaboration look like here? And where do these large-scale partnerships tend to struggle? 
And I'll start with one of our important partners in this work is the Global Living Wage Coalition. And that's a coalition made up of various multi-stakeholder initiatives and nonprofits, um, such as Fair Trade International, Fair Trade USA, Social Accountability International, and Rainforest Alliance. And it's a coalition of these nonprofits really working to uphold the Global Living Wage Coalition estimates that are developed by Richard and Martha Anker. They have done incredible research on how to calculate what a living wage estimate in a country or region should be for a group of workers, whether they're urban workers or rural workers working in factories or farms. And part of the commitment in the coalition is to work within our own members to uphold the commitment to the living wage estimates and how do we make progress. And so we really enjoy working with the Global Living Wage Coalition and its mission to streamline this work globally within various supply chains. The other area of collaboration that we uphold is within our own members, our companies especially need to work together to actualize this commitment. And I want to be very sensitive to how I talk about how they work together because we aren't violating any antitrust regulations in our companies working on this. What they tend to do is collaborate on how to advise the FLA to improve our tools and systems so that they can make progress within their own operations. And so we have a practitioner's working group that helped develop our wage data collection tool and our dashboard methodology. And that also includes members from civil society and universities as well that provide input on how these different stakeholders look at the company's work on living wage and how do we need to make progress. And then we also have a task force of companies, including Adidas, Fanatics, Under Armour, Hugo Boss, Phoenix, and a few others, New Balance as well, that have really worked together to advise how to take our fair compensation dashboard, which is a really innovative and critical tool for our members to use to analyze their living wage gap and how to make it better so it's more user-friendly, and how do we prepare for some of the human rights due diligence legislation that we're anticipating, especially from the EU and also in the United States, and how does our dashboard help our companies meet those reporting needs that will come down the line from them. Those are our two main focuses of collaboration at the Fair Labor Association, but it doesn't stop there because there's a lot of amazing other organizations working on living wage here. One of the key areas of collaboration is happening through our living wage pilot that we started in Vietnam uh, last year where we're working with the German government, with GIZ's Initiative for Global Solidarity, and ERC, which is the Employment Resource Center in Vietnam, to identify how companies can make living wage progress in multi-buyer facilities. So working with ERC, who is our local expert in Vietnam, they are also behind the global living wage estimates in working with Richard and Martha Anker in Vietnam as well, and then working with with the Initiative for Global Solidarity to also facilitate collaboration with organizations like Fairware and ACT, bringing in different companies, different stakeholder perspectives to shape that pilot and really make it so that we can test different interventions and multi-buyer facilities that can really lead to improvement of wages for workers. I'll say that collaboration is really important in living wage because it is a very challenging topic and we do need participation from all the various stakeholders, especially in the fashion industry, to make that progress. Let's talk a little bit about unintended consequences. 
What are some of the risks associated with implementing living wage initiatives and how can brands mitigate these throughout their supply chains? The biggest area of concern that we have when a company goes to implement living wages is how are they engaging with workers through that process? I think it's really easy for companies to focus on the data, the analysis, and then the purchasing practices, and sometimes forget that they really need to be consulting with workers and that unions are a great form and a great mechanism for workers to negotiate their wages. When we talk about fair compensation and living wage and the strategies behind Behind it, union engagement and collective bargaining absolutely have to be part of the conversation and involved in how to shape wage improvements. And if there's not a union in the factory, there needs to be some type of worker representative committee. Because as a lot of people who work within factories will know, as soon as you start to talk about wages and how they will impact workers, workers are very sensitive to that. And the biggest risk that we're trying to avoid is workers striking because they're concerned about the challenges that they may experience experience when wages are being changed. And so it's really important to engage with workers, explain to them the intent around the living wage work is not to scrutinize what they need to live on, but to ensure that what they're earning is enough for them to live on and have some savings and support their families. Another unattended consequence that we tend to see is that because it is a challenging topic and there's still a need for more successes on how to improve living wage, is that companies are cautious in getting started and some may refrain from getting started on this work because there's still a need to showcase what success looks like on living wage. And we really do need a lot of the industry to shift towards commitment to upholding living wage and actualizing that within their business practices. And so I really would like to make the case that if you're a company that is still quite timid on working on this, that it really does need to be a focus in business practices and changes because we do see the compelling case, especially from younger generations, that businesses that rely on workers to make their products really should be ensuring that the wages that they provide can and provide decent and dignified work to those people. We really want to compel everyone to get started. And then also, there's a lot of focus on climate initiatives and science-based targets. And while that's all really important work, there does need to be a focus on the workers impacted by climate change and climate disasters, a lot of them working in the factories in Southeast Asia, um, South Asia, who are going to be impacted by more and more climate disasters. And so how do their wages in ensure that they have a safety net when they have to change location or have to deal with flooding or other disasters that can really impact a household. There's a lot to consider. And and largely, I just want companies to get started on this work and to look for partners like the Fair Labor Association to help them guide through some of those challenging issues and how to set that up so that you can ensure that you're engaging with workers and stakeholders and unions that really are trying to uphold this right for people. You mentioned, of course, that responsible purchasing practices are a fundamental part of delivering on these living wage initiatives. So perhaps we could dig a bit deeper into that and you could provide some practical approaches and best practice guidance for when it comes to these more responsible purchasing practices. What do these look like? 
The Fair Labor Association also focuses on responsible purchasing practices as part of our accreditation work and within our principles. And it really is the key to making living wage progress. I think there's a lot of great research and guidance out there on costing. ACT and Fairware have great guidance on how to ensure that minute costing can uphold living wage. And I will say costing is not the only mechanism in which living wage progress needs to happen. As I mentioned in our learnings from our case study, you really have to look at the planning practices as well. If you're forecasting and providing orders to factories in which they can't manage and execute them within regular time, and they're just really relying and planning with overtime to finish those orders, then it will be very challenging for workers to make living wage progress because the challenge with excessive overtime and the overtime premiums. At the Fair Labor Association, we do try to take a holistic view on responsible purchasing practices and the different levers in costing, sourcing, planning, and also sales and merchandising to ensure that the company as a whole can work together to uphold this right. And it's not just about increasing costs, but also looking at the different practices that impact the factory on a day-to-day level. And finally, we've been speaking, of course, about the apparel industry here, but the FLA works across numerous global supply chains. So in terms of other industries, are there specific initiatives that you'd recommend our listeners can look into? The Fair Labor Association also works in the agriculture sector, largely in cocoa and hazelnut commodities. And we've done some work on minimum wage and living wage in those commodities, but are really just starting to get that work off the ground and developing a wage tool that can collect wage data at smallholder farms for cocoa and coffee. It's such a challenging difference between working at a farm and working at a factory where factories tend to have more formal employment mechanisms and your smallholder farms may be family owned and have more informal mechanisms. We're working on that work now and there will be more to come from us on that. Uh, One of the commodities that Fair Labor Association is not in but is making great living wage progress is the banana sector. I think IDH has been working with various governments in the EU, such as Germany, the Netherlands, and most recently Belgium, in which these governments have expressed a commitment to living wage in the banana sector. And that's supported by some of the large grocery retailers in those countries as well. It's great to see a commitment to living wage in the banana sector and upholding procurement price in there. And one of the things I learned is that bananas is one of the most bought item than a grocery store because it has a short shelf life. So it's great to see progress happening in that sector and how we can replicate that in different commodities, different sectors is something that I'm keen to learn from and hopefully replicate in some of our other work as well. And then one of the things I'll call out, not so much from a sector perspective, but from a government perspective, it's really important for government to be able to recognize that how they legislate within the country can support living wage progress for their people. One of the reasons why we started a pilot in Vietnam is because we recognize that that country continuously commits to improving conditions for workers through the updated labor code that they have within the country and their legislation, and that they continuously increase the minimum wage to support the people within the country. 
That's really important to consider from a sourcing perspective, but also we see more and more movement towards human rights due diligence legislation within developed countries. And so how that considers sourcing from countries that are also committed to upholding human rights improvements for their people, I think is really important as well. There's a lot to learn from in living wage, but it's an evolving area. And so we're just continuously learning from each other, trying to trade ideas and successes but also trade where there has been challenges and perhaps a lack of success and to support each other and learn from each other in a global community. Tiffany, thank you so much for your time and insights. And I look forward to following the FLA's important work in the space. Thank you, Hannah. And do look out for more in the State of Apparel series over the coming weeks. As ever, the Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. And don't forget to register now for the Future of Food event in Minneapolis on the 30th of May and 1st of June to take advantage of the $450 discount on passes that will expire on Friday the 3rd of February. But that's it for now. I've been Welsh, and until next week, goodbye.